recipients of egg donations. Uh, and the question would become, let's say uh, a woman does have a uterus, uh, but she's either postmenopausal, so she's not ovulating, or her eggs are not maturing, uh, or uh, her ovaries were removed uh, because of uh, cancer or the like, but she can carry a baby. She has a uterus. So uh, the technology has been developed in which you have a donor, a woman, uh, who donates, and uh, she too is given the drugs to uh, you know, ovulate uh, more than one egg, and uh, surgically the egg is removed from her follicle, from her ovary, and uh, the husband's sperm uh, is exposed to that egg in an in vitro fertilization. Egg donation always involves IVF, uh, in an IVF uh, technology. And then uh, if it does get fertilized, the egg or the embryo will be transferred to the wife's uh, womb. And hopefully after nine months, she will deliver a baby. Uh, this is called egg donation, and it's a fairly common uh, situation. Uh, usually the egg donor is anonymous. Uh, so again, let me just summarize what the halachic issues are. Uh, first, uh, if the egg donor is not Jewish, one very major shaila is, who is the halachic mother of the child? Because here we have two candidates for mother. We have the egg donor mother, who after all contributed 50% of the genetic makeup the chromosomal material, uh, but we also have the birth mother that, that carried the baby for nine months. Uh, so it's very important to know uh, who is the mother. Uh, in the case of a husband and wife who are Jewish, who use a donated, get, donated egg from a, a non-Jewish woman, uh, does the child need to be converted? Because if mother, we know Judaism is based on the mother, uh, but who's the mother? Genetic mother or gestational mother? Uh, if the uh, genetic mother is the mother, the child is a goy. And if the child is a goy, the child would have to be converted. And we'll discuss how do you convert a baby. I'll, I'll get to that. If, on the other hand, the birth mother is the mother, the child is a Jew and would not need conversion. So we'll have to discuss. Didn't hear you. Yeah. If the mother is the genetic mother, the child is a goy because his mother is a goy. Therefore, he would need to be converted as a baby. I'll discuss how you convert a baby in a moment. If, on the other hand, the birth mother is the mother, the child is born from a Jewish mother. His mother is Jewish. The child would not be a, a need conversion. So in the United States, where you assume that an anonymous egg donor is not Jewish, that's going to be your assumption because most of the population are not Jewish. That that's true in every country except Israel. And even in Israel, unfortunately, the Arab birth rate uh, is pretty high, but we're still a majority. Uh, Jewish people here. Uh, so question number one is, would the child need to be converted? That's a very important question. Uh, because whoever his halachic mother is will be his religion. So if his halachic mother is the birth mother, he's Jewish by birth. 
if his halachic mother is the genetic mother, he is non-Jewish and would have to be converted. So that's one issue. Issue number two, which is rare, less common, but it's an issue as well, is what if the egg donor is, number one, a married woman? Jewish or non-Jewish. Or the egg donor is a relative like a mother, this is either mother of wife or mother of husband, or a sister, sister of wife or sister of husband. You can have egg donor. In fact, it's, it's, it's actually fairly common that an egg donor might be a family relative of that nature. Now here the question is, if husband's sperm fertilizes the egg of his mother, or his mother-in-law, or his sister, or his wife's sister, which is incestuous, or a married woman generally, in the Petri dish, is that considered an act of adultery or incest? Okay, this is somewhat analogous to the Satmar Rebbe's thing about a, a sperm donor. When sperm donor fertilizes a married woman's egg, well, this is the, the, this is the same type of situation. Husband's sperm is fertilizing the egg of a married woman or a mother or a mother-in-law or a sister or a sister-in-law. All of these are forbidden relations. Would we treat this as tantamount to forbidden intercourse, which would therefore make the child a mamzer? That's pretty bad. A mamzer is a child who's Jewish, but he's not allowed to marry uh, anyone except another mamzer or a, a Jew by choice, like a convert. Right, so these are the two main halachic issues regarding egg donation. Uh, one is if the egg donor is non-Jewish or presumed to be non-Jewish, do we define the child as Jewish by birth or Jewish by needing conversion? And the second are the potential issues of incest or adultery, depending on the nature of the egg uh, donor. I should also point out that the issue of who is the mother may also be relevant regarding which relatives the born child could eventually marry. Uh, for example, let's imagine the egg donor, if, if she's Jewish, has other children, natural children. Are they treated as siblings of the kid born from... In other words, could he marry... Let's say it's a boy. A boy is born from egg donation. Could he marry the, sis, the daughter of the egg donor? Now, you see, it all depends. If his mother is the egg donor, that makes the girl his sister. But if his mother is the, is the birth mother... He is not related to that girl. So you understand that the, the point I'm raising is the issue of who is the mother is not only a Jew goy issue, it is also is he related to the other children of the egg donor? He's related if he shares a mother. But if the egg donor is not his mother, he's not related. Now, a geneticist would certainly say they shouldn't get married. You shouldn't marry the, the daughter of your egg donor because genetically you, have, uh, you're, you come from a common origin. But, all right, so genetically that's true. 
But the question is, what would halacha say about that particular issue? Okay, so these are the various halachic issues in egg donation. I'll give you some proofs to these questions. But because of this, uh, at least in writing, uh, most rabbis do not uh, encourage egg donation because they say that it raises halachic complications. But I will tell you uh, that there is a divergence, I think, between halachic theory and halachic practice, meaning the people who write books say don't do it. But in the field, uh, women are often told they're allowed to do this. So there are things that rabbis might allow on a case-by-case basis, but they don't necessarily want to codify it as a permanent practice. In fact, another example would be an issue we discussed earlier about a single woman getting impregnated from a sperm donor. Now, I had mentioned that the svarim are not in favor of it, but on an individual basis, there may be things that might be allowed that we don't want to institutionalize. I think egg donation is kind of along uh, that way, in which the svarim don't want to make it a widespread thing, but if other avenues were tried and they were not successful, so this is an option that's available and the like. But you do have these halachic issues, these three halachic issues. Number one, Jew or Goy. Uh, number uh, two, uh, the issue of uh, incest and adultery. And number three, who are the relatives that the child that is born from the egg donor is not allowed to marry? But that directly depends on who is the mother. In other words, can a boy born from a donated egg marry a sibling who was born from the woman who donated the egg, whether naturally or by another egg donation? Uh, And once again, that depends on who his mother is. If his mother is not the egg donor, if his mother is the birth mother, he is halakhically not related to that sister or whatever it is. Okay, so these these are the problems. So let me just uh, share with you a bit of a, um, some of the proofs that are brought to this discussion. And there are actually two different proofs which move in opposite directions. Uh, the first proof uh, is the following. The Talmud in Masecha Shivamas, the Gemara Masecha Shivamas, uh, discusses the issue of a woman who converts to Judaism while she's pregnant. In other words, she was impregnated Let's say by a guy. It really makes no difference. You are a guy, but she's impregnated when she was a guy, and then she converts and becomes a Jewess while she is pregnant. Uh, and what does she have to do? How does she become a Jew? She accepts the mitzvot and she goes to a mikvah. Right. That's all. You know, a boy has three. A man has three things to do. A man has bris milah, mikvah and accepting mitzvahs. A woman has mikvah and accepting mitzvahs. We'll discuss a little later some of the more details about conversion. So the question is, the Gemara discusses, when the kids are born, do they have to go to the mikvah in order to be Jewish? Or are they Jewish because the mother's immersion in the mikvah was good for them. So the Gemara says, 
When a pregnant woman converts, her children, when born, do not have to go to the mikvah because when the mother went into the mikvah, the children, the fetuses, also went into the mikvah. They immersed in the mikvah. So the Gemara asks the obvious question, how can we say that the mother's immersion in the mikvah is the immersion of the kids? There is a halacha by mikvah called chatzitzah. What is chatzitsa? There can't be anything that separates between you and the water. For example, when a woman goes to the mikveh every month, she has to remove her makeup, nail nail polish, rings, all the stuff, because they are a separation. So here, that's only a separation of a little part of your body. Here, the fetus is totally inside the mother. That's the biggest separation you can have. So the Gemara asks, how can we say when mom goes to the mikveh, the babies have gone to the mikveh? There's a chatzitza. There's a, a massive division between the fetuses and the water of the mikveh, namely the mother's body. And that's the question. So the Gemara's answer is, an interesting answer, that since the fetuses cannot live without the mother's body. They need the mother's body to live. So that which you need to stay alive is not called a chatzitza. Now that may have some interesting repercussions. Let's imagine that a person's on an oxygen tank and they have to be constantly connected to oxygen. Could the woman go to the mikveh if she has like, you know, like a scuba diver, she has an oxygen tank connected to her. According to this, if she could not live without it, it would not be a chatzitza and she could go to the mikvah. Okay, everyone understands the teaching of the Gemara. So now, the proof, how this bears on our question of egg donation is actually a, a bit subtle and a little complicated. And that is, If you think about it, a child that was conceived in the womb of a a non-Jewish woman and then she converts is very analogous to a donated donated egg from a Gentile. Because in the case of egg donation, the concept, assuming the egg donor is not Jewish, the conception, the kid was a guy, but the emergence of the womb, the mother was Jewish. Now, if you're going to tell me that as long as you're born from a Jewish mother, we don't care about your Gentile origin, then why do the kids need mikvah at all? The kids don't need mikvah. They're Jewish because their mother is Jewish. I mean, the same way if the woman became pregnant after her conversion, the kids would be Jewish. If they became pregnant before her conversion, but were born after her conversion, they were born from a Jewish mother. If they were born from a Jewish mother, why do you have to predicate their Jewishness on the immersion in the mikvah? They're Jewish because they were born Jewish. So you see from this text, it's a bit of a complicated idea, that even if you're born from a Jewish woman, if your conception 
was as a Gentile, you need a conversion ceremony. If that's the case, when a non-Jewish woman becomes pregnant, that's going to be equally true for a donated egg. So that would mean, okay, not, without obscuring the proof, the, the, the proof would essentially say, therefore, that if the egg donor is not Jewish, but the birth mother is Jewish, the child would need a conversion because just like the babies in the pregnant woman need to be immersed in the mikvah. Okay, so that would be a proof for the svara, for the side of the argument that says the definition of motherhood is the, is the egg donor, the genetic mother, rather than the birth mother or the gestational mother. That's the fancier term for it. But now, let me give you an opposite proof, which is not a complete proof, but an interesting proof. In fact, you may have heard this over the years. And that is, we're going to read in uh, two weeks about Yaakov Avinu having all of the tribes, all of the children, in Parshas Vayetze. So it mentions by all of the children that Leah, or Rachel, as it were, conceived, got pregnant, and gave birth. With Dina, the daughter Dina, it simply says Leah gave birth to Dina. It does not say she got pregnant and gave birth to Dina. Why does it omit the word and Leah got pregnant with Dina? So Rashi gives us the following medrash. Rashi says, remember, how many children have been born already? What we have here is uh, we have um, Leah has had six sons, Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zavulin. Bila has had two sons, Don, Naftali. Zilpa has had two sons, Gad and Asher. So how many is that? We have ten. Ten. And uh, Rachel has had Yosef. Now, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So after the ten sons were born, Rachel was pregnant and Leah was pregnant. Leah was originally carrying a boy. But Leah is afraid of the following thing. Since we know there's only going to be 12 tribes, if I give birth to a boy, and that's going to be number 11, that's going to leave only one child, one boy, for Rachel to have. That will make Rachel inferior to the maidservants. So, Leah, who was carrying a boy, prayed that the boy should be converted to a girl, and that was Dina. So, and that enabled Rachel to have Yosef and then Binyamin. Meaning, originally, Leah would have had the 11th tribe, which would have been Yosef. But if Leah would have had the 11th tribe, that would have left only one Shevet for Rachel. So Leah prayed that the boy she was carrying should be turned into a girl. Again, with the transgender community actually makes a little bit of this stuff in various ways, that the sense was that uh, Dina was the first trans, in a sense, I shouldn't, shouldn't talk that way, that uh, Dina was supposed to have been a boy, and instead she was a girl, 
and uh, that even explains why she enjoyed going out so much, they say, because there were certain masculine tendencies in her and, and the like. That is how Rashi brings the Medrash, that Dina is simply a boy who was turned into a girl, a, mir- a miracle. However, there's another interpretation of the Medrash. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Hello. Rashi's version. Again, it's important. The Medrash that Rashi brings says Dina was a boy who was turned into a girl. But there's an alternative understanding of that same Medrash. And this is from Yonasan ben Uziel. Now, who is Yonasan ben Uziel? Just a little biographical information. Yonasan ben Uziel is from the time of the Mishnah, and he was a Talmud of Hillel, the great Hillel. And uh, it says he was so holy that when he would be learning and a bird would fly over him, the bird would get burnt with the fire of his Kedusha and the fire of his Torah. By the way, people like to say that your reaction to that story is the difference between a chassid and a misnaget. A chassid would be so amazed and so moved at the holiness of a human being that even the angels come and want to hear the Torah of a human being. A misnaget would be concerned with the halachic technicalities. If my learning causes your parakeet to get burnt, do I have to pay you? you know, what does halacha say? And Misnagid always looks at everything uh, as halachic rather than the spiritual idea. Anyway, though, on the Chumash, Yonasan Benizil wrote a commentary on the Chumash that's called Targum Yonasan. And Targum Yonasan says a different pshat. Instead of saying that Dina was a boy who turned into a girl, there actually was an embryo switch. Meaning, Rachel was carrying a girl who would have been Dina. Leah was carrying a boy who would have been Yosef. God didn't change anything from one gender to another, but God miraculously switched it. God took out the baby that Rachel was carrying and put it in Leah, because of Leah's prayer. And God took out the baby that Leah was carrying, that was Yosef, and put it into Rachel's womb. You see the difference? According to Rashi, you're talking about a sex change. According to Targum Yainasan, you're talking about an embryo switch. Now, fascinatingly, if you learn the Medrash, the way Targum Yainasan learns the Medrash, it turns out that Dina was born from an egg donation, that Dina was genetically Rachel's child, even though she was physically born from Leah. 
And Yosef was Leah's child, even though she was physically born from Rachel. And since, throughout the whole Torah, we always describe Dina as Leah's child, that seems to, and Yosef is always described as Rachel's child, that seems to prove that in the case of an egg donation, we do not look at the genetic origin, we look at the birth mother. In other words, this moves as a proof in the opposite direction of the first proof. You see this? You see this? Because essentially, according to Targum son, Yosef was born from Leah's egg, and Dina was born from Rachel's egg. But Yosef was born from Rachel's womb, and Dina was born from Leah's womb. And since the Torah always calls Dina the daughter of Leah, and Yosef the son of Rachel, that implies that if you have two potential candidates for motherhood, genetic egg donor versus birth mother, you give priority to birth mother, which would indicate, therefore, that if uh, the uh, person is born from a non-Jewish donated egg, but is born from a Jewish mother, they would not need conversion. Okay, so I gave you two proofs, and, and the proofs actually move in opposite directions, so you can see that there is a machlokas. Now again, you need to understand that the proof I just gave you is only a proof according to Targum Yonah's son's interpretation of the Medrash, not according to Rashi. According to Rashi, there was no embryo switch. Rachel was both the genetic mother and the birth mother of Dina. And, I'm sorry, uh, Leah. Leah was both the genetic uh, mother and birth mother of Dina. And Rachel was both the genetic mother and birth mother of Yosef. The only thing that happened with Dina was a sex change. She was conceived as a, fem- as a male and God changed her into a female. But there was no embryo switch. Okay, you see the difference here. We have two different understandings of what the story of Dina is. Was it a sex change or an embryo switching? The proof to egg donation is only like the understanding that the medrash is embryo switching <coughs> rather than sex change. Which means, according to Rashi, you do not have any proof at all to this underlying halachic question. You only have a proof according to Yonasan ben Uziel. Did you want to say? Um, if a Jewish woman donates her egg and it's carried by a non-Jewish woman, that child is then non-Jewish. So, so once again, uh, this would depend. This is the same question. Uh, and if you show from the Dina story that motherhood is defined as birth mother then in a situation where a Jewish egg uh, got uh, impregnated, got fertilized in vitro, and was carried by a non-Jewish woman, the child will be non-Jewish. In other words, it's all, it's all the same thing. In fact, this will get me into surrogacy, which will be the mirror image of this. Okay, so these are two proofs that are brought to this question. What's fascinating is that the proofs move in opposite directions, which shows you that sometimes in halakha, people can bring proofs to opposite sides of the question, which means we really don't know. Now, let's flip this over a little bit because this is really the same question, and that is we have egg donation where the wife carries the baby, but uh, it, uh, the, the sperm of the husband fertilized a donor egg. 
Let's talk about surrogacy. Now, surrogacy is really the reverse situation. Surrogacy, well, well, first of all, there are different types of surrogacy. One type of surrogacy is halakhically very, very simple. Uh, there is what is called total surrogacy, and there is what is called gestational surrogacy. Now, total surrogacy, I'm not sure, I, th- I think there's another term for it, but you'll, you'll see what I mean. That simply means that you're, you're hiring a woman for the whole shebang. That basically means that husband's sperm will fertilize the egg of the surrogate and she will also carry the baby. That would be, for example, if a person's wife has a total hysterectomy. She has no womb, she has no ovaries, so she neither ovulates nor can she carry a baby. So you can hire a total surrogate, meaning to say uh, the woman agrees. Now, usually, well, there are different ways of doing it. If, if you're hiring a total surrogate, you can either use artificial insemination or, or IVF, meaning to say you can have the husband's sperm directly injected into her body, so that way the conception occurs in her body, or you can have an IVF where the fertilized egg goes into her. That, that really makes no difference, but the common denominator of total surrogacy is that the surrogate is both the genetic mother and the birth mother. Now, total surrogacy in some ways is very simple. If she's not Jewish, for sure the kid is not Jewish because she is both the birth mother and the genetic mother. So total surrogacy does not raise any halachic uncertainty. It's very simple. The surrogate is the halachic mother, no question about it. But gestational surrogacy is where you get the same problem as egg donation. Gestational surrogacy would be, it's the opposite of egg donation. In the case of egg donation, husband's sperm fertilizes donor's egg and the embryo goes into wife's body. That's egg donation. Gestational surrogacy is husband's sperm fertilizes wife's egg IVF, through IVF, and then the fertilized embryo goes into the surrogate. So the surrogate is not the genetic mother. The surrogate is simply carrying the baby for nine months. That's why we call it a gestational surrogate. It's not a total surrogate. It's a gestational surrogate. The halachic problems with a gestational surrogate are exactly the same, exactly the same as the halachic problems with egg donation. And I'll go over the three problems again. Problem one, who is the mother? Is motherhood defined by the one who carried the baby for nine months? Or is motherhood defined by the genetic contributor? Now, in surrogacy, it's the same question. Uh, If the surrogate is not Jewish and the wife is Jewish, if I follow the birth mother, the child would need conversion. If I follow the genetic mother, the child would not need conversion, the opposite of egg donation in that way. Similarly, 
if the surrogate is a mother or a mother-in-law, and by the way, mothers have been surrogates for their daughters. A young mother, you know, might be able to carry the baby. So if the surrogate is a mother, mother-in-law, sister, sister-in-law, there is a problem if the husband's sperm is incestuous or adult. And if the surrogate is married, is it adultery? And finally, the issue would be, uh, is the child who is born from the surrogate prohibited in the siblings of the surrogate? The other, not, I mean, the, not the, 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 child, the other children that are born from the surrogate, again, who is the mother? If my mother is this person, I'm forbidden in those siblings. If my mother is the other person, I'm prohibited in other siblings. So you understand that gestational surrogacy is simply a reversal of egg donation and all of the same questions are going to apply as to who is the mother. Uh, now the big fundamental problem legally that has always arose with gestational surrogacy is what if the surrogate doesn't want to give back the kid? That's a big problem. Unlike an egg donor who has no real emotional connection with the baby that's born, a gestational surrogate, and called Bahomer a total surrogate, has carried a baby for nine months. Well, if they've carried a baby for nine months, it may be difficult to give up the baby, and there have been a lot of legal court cases. Uh, because again, the surrogate signs a contract to give up the baby, and uh, some states took the position that this was not a legal contract because that was like selling a baby. Baby selling is against the law. So some courts said surrogacy contracts are simply selling a baby ahead of time. And a woman is saying, I'm carrying a baby which I will give to you for money. So without getting into the law, uh, with all the laws, it's a legal problem. If you are contemplating uh, either total surrogacy or gestational surrogacy, uh, just as a legal matter, you need to talk to a lawyer. But halachically, generally speaking, surrogacy would be discouraged because of all of these halachic problems that exist. Yeah? Is there like an ideal way, like if someone were to do that, what's the like ideal setup? Okay, so the ideal setup is that the surrogate be Jewish, she be single, and she not be related to the husband or the wife. Is there a problem Okay, so that's the question. In other words, if you look at it from the perspective of the married couple, you know, I and my wife as a married couple, we want a single surrogate. Now, but if you look at it from the perspective of the single woman, is it proper for a single woman to be a surrogate? Some would say no, because that would be similar to the problem of unmarried women getting pregnant. It looks like they may have had an, an affair. And also, some have even said that since pregnancy is always a danger to health, if you're not married, you're not even allowed to take on the dangers of pregnancy. So that's one of the reasons. So you are correct that looking at it from the surrogate standpoint, it's not the best thing to do. Uh, I mean, carrying a baby for nine months is not easy, and uh, if you're not married and you're not carrying it to have a child, it may not even be permissible in that, in that way. 
Uh, in Hebrew, the term for gestational surrogate, interesting term in Hebrew, it's called aim pundakait, which literally means uh, an innkeeping mother. She's like an innkeeper. She's giving a, uh, she's kind of making her womb available as a hotel room uh, for the child. Pundakait, the innkeeper mother. Okay? All right, so these are some things to uh, be aware of and the like. So now, just as a little aside, since we did talk about the question of whether you have to convert... Okay, okay? Okay. Yeah, since you have to... We talked about do you have to convert the baby that's born from egg donation or from a non-Jewish surrogate. Let me talk a little bit about converting babies. We know, of course, that halacha, Judaism, recognizes that there's such a thing as conversion. Uh, Every non-Jew can become a Jew, so we're not a race. We don't say you have to be born Jewish. It's true that we discourage conversion because we want to be sure you're sincere, but if a person is sincere, they become Jewish. Uh, And there's a way to become Jewish. There's a process to become Jewish. Uh, This is called gior or gerus. That's the same thing. And as I just said a few moments ago, uh, men have three steps and women have two steps. Uh, the three steps for a man is bris milah, immersion in a mikvah, and accepting the commandments in front of a basin of three rabbis. Uh, a woman has two of those steps, immersion in a mikvah, and accepting the mitzvahs. As a little aside, it's a little awkward sometimes, because all of this has to be done in front of a basin of three rabbis. So the question becomes, how does that work with a woman going to the mikvah? Meaning, unlike the monthly mikvah, which of course is private, and the only one who might be there is the mikvah lady, here, the candidate for Gior is supposed to go to the mikvah in front of three men. Uh, how do we, I mean, obviously we have to preserve modesty, we have to preserve tzniyos, so how do we do that? Right? Just practice. Right? Well, uh, not really. Uh, I, I mean, there are, different, there are different ways you can do it. Meaning, some say, some might say wear loose clothing. Mm-hmm. Others say no, because, you know, that's a chatzitza. We don't want to be an individual. So, so what different basins do it different ways. I cannot say there's a single procedure. But uh, one of the things they do is that they have a mikvah lady with the candidate. And the candidate goes into the water up to her neck. And she's facing her back as to the basin. So when the basin... And they're called. The basin is called into the room, seeing only the back of her head. And then they just have to see that her head is under the water, and then they, they leave. So others have a white sheet, which is floating on top of the water, in which she's uh, in the water. And there's like a white cape, a white sheet all over. And all the, again, all they see is the head, and then they just see the white sheet. So that's, that's good. All right, so again, it's a little awkward. Others, others are more makel, and they say that they don't have to be witnesses at all, meaning to say they stand outside the door of the mikvah, and the mikvah lady can tell them that she went under, and that's all. And then she gets dressed, and then comes out, and they ask her, do you accept the mitzvahs? Okay, so this is the conversion of an adult. By an adult, we mean the Jewish definition of adult. A girl is 12, a boy is 13, they are adults. Once an adult converts, it's not changeable, it's not revocable. 
I mean, it's, it's fundamental to Judaism that we do not recognize conversion out of Judaism. Whether you're a born Jew or you're a converted Jew, makes no difference. Once you are a Jewish person, there is no way you can become a non-Jewish person. So even if you converted to so-called converted to Christianity, you became a Messianic Jew, or you converted to Islam, there are a few people who do that, or you became a Buddhist, you are still Jewish. Right? This is the famous rule, Yisrael afal pi shechata. A Jew, even if he sins, Yisrael hu. You're a Jew. Okay? So conversion is really a one-way street. We let you in, but we don't let you out. You're stuck. Okay. Right? Now, all of this applies, however, only, only to the conversion of an adult. What about children? What about babies? So here, there is a protocol in the Talmud to convert children who are below bar mitzvah, bas mitzvah, and even convert a newborn baby. And let's, let's use adoption as a scenario like this. Sometimes, We've been talking about advanced fertility technology. Right? We've been talking about uh, AID and AIH and in vitro fertilization and egg donation and surrogacy. But there's a low-tech way of building a family if you're not able to have children. That is something called adoption. Like people can adopt. So let's talk about adoption a little bit because it'll segue into conversion. First and foremost, you need to know Adoption, per se, does not make a child Jewish. Just because a Jewish family adopts a child, and legally that child now has my name, so the child could be a Katz, the child could be a Rappaport, the child could be a Goldstein. Yeah, legally, that's his name now. An adopted child, we even changed the birth certificate to say Goldstein. Child is not Jewish. Adoption is a legal procedure. It is not a halachic procedure. Adoption does not make a child Jewish. Now, if the child is already Jewish, they're Jewish. If the child is not Jewish, they have to be converted. For various reasons, it is halachically easier to adopt a non-Jewish child than to adopt a Jewish child. Now, let me explain why. It's certainly a greater mitzvah to adopt a Jewish child. If, God forbid, a Jewish child doesn't have a home, and I'm going to give him a home, it's a mitzvah to give any child without a home a home, but a Jewish child would be a bigger mitzvah. But halakhically, Jewish children have certain problems that a non-Jewish child wouldn't have. And that is, if I don't know the family background of a Jewish child, I may have to be worried that maybe the Jewish child is a mamzer. Maybe the mother committed adultery, or maybe the mother had the child from incest. So the child might be a mamzer and may not be able to marry when he grows up. If I adopt a non-Jewish child and I convert him, that erases the past, right? Because converted people are like newly born people. So halachically, I don't want to say the word, it's better to adopt a non-Jewish child. That may, that's actually not true. It's better to adopt a Jewish child. But adopting a non-Jewish child is halakhically easier because you're not going to have a problem of mobs here. 
That's why typically, if you look at Jewish people who adopt, well, there are two reasons. Number one, uh, it's very, very hard to find healthy Jewish children who are put up for adoption because Jews don't put up their kids for adoption. So if, you're, if you want to do a special needs adoption, which is even a greater mitzvah, you could find Jewish children. But if you're only willing to adopt a healthy child, generally there'll be much more non-Jewish children than not. So you'll find that Jewish people will tend to adopt non-Jewish children if they're adopting. That just happens to be the demographic of it. So I adopt a non-Jewish child. That child is a guy. What do I do to make that child Jewish? So the Gemara in Kesubis actually says that even though this child cannot consent to be Jewish, either because they're a minor or because they're a baby, I can make the decision for them because we assume that being Jewish is a good thing. So that actually means if I adopt a baby boy, I get the boy a bris, but there's special blessings because it's the bris of conversion. I immerse the kid in a mikvah. Now, how do you immerse a kid in a mikvah? Okay, if he's five, he can go into a mikvah. Uh, if he's six months old, what do you do? You throw, <laughs> throw the baby into the mikvah? Right? The, throw the baby in the bathwater and you know, learn to swim? No, so obviously we don't throw the baby in the mikvah. But the father, in front of a basin, the father goes into the mikvah. Right? I hold my, the baby over my arms. It could be a newborn baby. It could be three days old. And draped over my arms, face down, I go into the mikvah, I'm wearing shorts or whatever it is, and I lower my arms, lift him up. Now, if that sounds scary, let me just tell you, it's really not that scary. Uh, in fact, the younger the baby, the better, because babies have this very cute uh, swimming reflex. When their face hits the water, face first, they hold their breath automatically, and they even do, do the dog paddle. You know, <laughs> this and that. Uh, and you lift them up. Now, after six months, it's not dangerous, but they, they, they don't have that reflex anymore, so they may swallow water. They get a little uncomfortable. So earlier you do it, the better. And the baby will cry after you lift them out of the water, but not because of pain, only because it's cold. The water is very enjoyable. The water reminds him of the good old days in the womb. <laughs> so he's kind of used to it. I assure you it is absolutely not, not a problem. Uh, the only thing is that we generally do the bris before the mikvah. And it, the baby should have a week between the bris and the mikvah. So if we do the bris, uh, we won't do the mikvah for a week or so. Uh, and the bris should be before the immersion in the mikvah. If it's a girl, you can take her to the mikvah uh, right away. So uh, we do that. And then the acceptance of the commandments is made by the parents, not by the baby. The parents agree in front of the basin that they will raise the child according to halacha, including a Jewish education, Orthodox Jewish education, keeping of Shabbos, keeping of kosher. At that point, the child has now become Jewish even though they never agreed. Now, here is the important point. Because they never agreed, this is the only conversion where when they reach bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah, 
they have the right to make a decision that they don't want to be Jewish. Now, people sometimes misquote this. I hear a lot of people say, oh, when a child was converted as a minor, they have to go to the mikveh again when they become bar mitzvah. Not true. They don't have to go to the mikveh. It's the other way around. They have the right to renounce their conversion, but if they don't renounce it, their conversion is valid. They don't have to do anything to be Jewish. It's the other way around. If they don't say they don't want to be Jewish, the conversion sticks. See? Oh, so how much do they have? How long do they have? So uh, this is a little tricky. It says they have a reasonable amount of time, but it says if they started doing mitzvahs after their bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah, they lose the right to revoke. Which, so, so practically speaking, if they simply did one davening on their bar mitzvah day or bas mitzvah day, they've lost the right to renounce. But here is the interesting thing. That's only true if they knew they were converted and they knew they had the right to say no. If they didn't know until 10 years later, they could renounce it then. That's why if you didn't tell your child he was adopted and the child thought he was born Jewish, when he's 45 and he finds out, he can say, I don't want to be Jewish anymore. Where's your option? Is he considered a Jew all these years now? Actually not. He's retroactively not a Jew, not a Jew at all. Not a Jew at all. So this is the only case where a Jew who was converted can actually renounce his conversion and get out. By the way, renunciation doesn't have to be permanent. A person might renounce it, and then if five years later he decides he wants to be Jewish again, he has to, he has to, he has to do it. Yeah, he starts from zero. In other words, nothing, not, not, none of that counts, but if he wants to become a Jew, he's like anyone else who can become a Jew. I actually know, now, I can tell you that it's very, very rare that an adopted child who was converted renounces his conversion. He says, I don't want to be a Jew. But I know one case where it did happen. Uh, I knew a case, in fact, he had religious reasons for it. Um, he was a non-Jewish, well, actually, this wasn't an adoption. Let me point out, the idea of converting minors can come up in a few different ways. One is a Jewish couple adopts a non-Jewish kid. That's one scenario. Another scenario is intermarriage. A Jewish man marries a non-Jewish woman. They have children who are non-Jewish. And the wife decides to convert and everyone wants to, they all become religious and they all want to convert together. So this is not an adoption, but it's the same situation where non-Jewish minor children are going to convert with their mother. That's very tricky. I, I'm going to save a full discussion of that for later, but that is very, very tricky. Theoretically, the answer is yes. Theoretically, the children could be converted as Jewish even if mom remains non-Jewish. But the problem is, a very practical problem, in order to convert the minor children, we have to know, the basin has to know that they're going to be raised in a halachic environment. Now, how easy will it be for the non-Jewish woman to keep Shabbos and keep kosher and keep all of these halachos. Theoretically, if you're asking me theoretically, is it possible? It is. Uh, but most of the time, the basin will not do it because they simply say there is no guarantee 
that there will be a halakhically proper environment. Yeah, sir. When you say a minor, do you mean bar, below bar mitzvah? Yeah, anyone below bar mitzvah, r- 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 ranging from one day old to one day before the 13th birthday. So yeah, yeah. A minor, I don't mean below 18. Once a kid is 13 or 12, uh, they are adults. In fact, we cannot convert them without their consent. Um, okay? So that's what you need to know a little bit about the conversion of minors. Now, one other thing that's impo- interesting is that unfortunately we have in modern life the phenomenon that are called off the derech, they even abbreviate it OTD, or kids at risk, in which kids from religious homes decide they don't want to keep mitzvahs. So what does that mean if you have an adopted non-Jewish kid who was converted, or you have you know, an intermarried couple, or even everybody was going and they all converted, and then a kid stops being religious when he's 13, is that a renunciation of the conversion? Does that make him a guy? So the answer is it doesn't. Because renunciation doesn't mean I don't keep mitzvahs. It means I don't want to be Jewish. And most of the time, even when a kid says I don't want to be from, he's not saying I don't want to be Jewish. See, renunciation is a very rare situation where a person says I don't want to be a Jew. And even non-religious people Usually, I mean, sometimes they do, but usually they don't say that. In fact, in fact they often say, I'm proud to be a Jew. I, you know, you know, <laughs> they'll tell you, uh, I had this all the time, you know, hey, I don't keep Shabbos, but you know, I am proud to be a Jew. You know, so under those situations, he remains a Jew. So the case that I was involved in was um, a Russian man, a Jewish man, a Jewish-Russian man married a non-Jewish woman, had a boy, she converted, and he was converted as a minor, right, which is okay, they followed the halacha. Uh, but as he grew older and he learned about all of the punishments for Jews that they don't keep the mitzvahs, he said, why should I be a Jew and be punished for all of my sins? I'll be a goy, and all I have to do is keep the seven Noahide laws, and my life will be a lot easier. Now, his parents were not learned, and they didn't understand what on earth is this kid talking about. He wants to be a guy, and they called me and said, you know, is my son crazy? You know, what does he want to do? I said, well, halakhically, you know, he has the right to make that decision before his bar mitzvah, or he didn't know about it until he was 16, so he could make the decision then. I tried to talk him out of it, but he was very adamant. He said, I don't want to be a Jew because it's too hard. I want to live by an easier standard. So he renounced his conversion. He became a guy, and then around five years later, he reconverted, starting from zero, starting from the very beginning. And now I think he's in Kolel. He's like learning in Yerushalayim, like totally from married kids. But he had this like five-year period where technically he became a guy, which really means, in a sense, he didn't want his parents making the decision. He had to make the decision himself. Did he and become a guy, or was he already a guy? No, the truth is, he, he was a guy retroactively. He was a guy from the time he was born. The whole conversion okay. was annulled. Okay. Yeah. And it should be a witness like three like adults. Oh, how do you re- how do you renounce? Yes, it should be in front of a basin, in front of the same basin. It's the same way you need a basin for the conversion. You need a basin for the renunciation of the conversion. Now, let me just mention one other thing that you see in the Jerusalem Post and other newspapers that are not 
reliable. Sometimes you have the situation of people who convert to Judaism, Orthodox, I don't mean Reform conservative, those are not valid. I'm talking about an Orthodox conversion in front of a proper basin. And then they desecrate Shabbos and they stop keeping kosher. And you read in the Jerusalem Post about how some basin invalidated their conversions because they stopped keeping mitzvos. And this may be thousands of conversions. Soviet Union, a lot of Russian Jews. So I want to make something very, very clear. A conversion of an adult cannot be invalidated because an adult stopped keeping mitzvahs. The same way a Jew, any Jew, who stops keeping mitzvahs is still a Jew. A ger who stops keeping mitzvahs is simply a Jew who stopped keeping mitzvahs. And a Jew who stops keeping mitzvahs, that's very sad. And we should try to help them and bring them back. But that does not take away their Jewishness. If, if, if you're born Jewish and you're not keeping mitzvahs, doesn't make you a non-Jew. A ger who stops keeping mitzvahs does not become a non-Jew. That's very important. So if any newspaper article says that some based in invalidated conversions because the converts stopped keeping mitzvahs, that is not true. Now, however, there's a subtlety. And that is, if at the time of the conversion, the person did not intend to keep mitzvahs, but tricked the basin, meaning at the time of the conversion, the person was thinking to themselves, I'm not really going to keep Shabbos, I'm not going to keep kosher. But I'll tell the base that I will in order that they'll convert me. Then a Basin can say, You defrauded the Basin and you misrepresented your intentions. Your conversion is null and void. In other words, it's important that you understand the difference. If somebody was sincere at the time, so their conversion was valid it will not become invalid because of what they do later. But if someone was insincere at the time, so at the time of the conversion there was a fraud, that is a basis for invalidation. And in Eretz Yisrael, some but they did have invalidated conversions uh, on the ground that it was very, very clear there was no intention to keep mitzvahs from the very beginning. Now, you understand that from the perspective of a basin, this is a very tricky problem. Meaning, if somebody converted and they said at the time, they are accepting mitzvahs. And later, they stopped being observant. Is it a change of mind? Or does it show they were not sincere in the beginning? That's a major difference. If it's a change of mind, they're still Jewish. If it shows they were not sincere in the first place, then they're not Jewish. So how do I know if they're later misbe... I mean, I can't read their brains. That's the problem. I can't read their minds. How do I know 
if what they do later is indicative of what they always thought. So part of it might just be passage of time. If somebody was keeping Shabbos for 10 years and then stopped, I can assume that they were sincere. If somebody converts 3 p.m. Friday afternoon and goes to the movies on Shabbos, I can, you know, two hours later, I can assume they weren't sincere. So to some degree, it's simply a question of how much time. But this is very tricky, and that's, that's why you'll find that it's hard for a Basin to issue such a decision. It's, it's a very difficult issue. When is it sincere? When is it not sincere? But again, the way the press reports it is inaccurate. The newspapers, the anti-religious papers, always put it, oh, you stop keeping mitzvos, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll invalidate your conversion. Not true. You cannot invalidate a conversion because somebody stopped keeping mitzvos. You can only invalidate a conversion if the proof is there was no intention to keep the mitzvos even at the time. Because part of a conversion is called kabbalah's mitzvos. Kabbalah's mitzvos is accepting the commandments. Okay, the question? Uh, yeah. Yeah, all right, so that's a very excellent point, and that goes back to the Gemara I said before. Um, certain now, so let's take a simple case. If a woman converts, and after her conversion gets pregnant, the kids are Jews, they're not, they're not converted Jews, they are born Jews, and they cannot renounce anything. The question is, if a woman converts while pregnant and gives birth to the kids, are the kids considered to be converts? They converted with her? or are they considered to be born Jews? Uh, now, if they're converts, they would have the right, they're like babies who converted, they're even pre-babies, they could renounce their conversion. If they are born Jews, they could not renounce their conversion. Uh, the postures of the Gemara that I said before is they are treated as converted Jews and would be able to renounce, and yet, la it's not clear, so uh, we don't uh, really allow it. I'll give you another example. Would baby boss yeah. the mother's I didn't hear you. What? So, like, if, would they be Boston under with mom's name or, like, Sarah? So, this would depend on exact. Um, no, that's a good question. We, we certainly give them the mother's name. They're, they're not Boston, unless the mother is Sarah. <laughs> but but uh, they, would, they would go with the mother's name. Yeah, they would not be Boston Sarah. By the way, just a little thing about adoption and names, since you raised it. Um, Another thing about adoption that's interesting, and this is actually a psak from the Babacher Rebbe, but he was not unique in this. This actually was a common psak. He pointed out that uh, adoption does raise some halachic problems of yichud and negiyah. Let's talk about this a little bit. We know that there are halachic restrictions on men being alone with women. And there are similar halachic restrictions on men and women having physical affection, holding hands, kissing, etc. Now, these halachos do not apply to father and daughter or mother and son. Mother and son can hug and kiss at any age. 
father and daughter can actually hug and kiss at any age, even when the daughter is married. And the reason is because yichud and negia, and yichud is seclusion, negia is physical touching, is forbidden because it might lead to improper sexual relations. And since in a normal family unit, uh, mother, uh, mother, son, father, daughter, and by the way, this includes grandparents, uh, great-grandparents all the way up and down, uh, don't have uh, improper sexual taiva, so we permit it. However, what's interesting is this only applies to biological children. So, if a husband and wife adopt a daughter, the husband, now not, not at birth, I'll talk about the age in a moment, eventually will have a restriction on yichud with his daughter and on hugging and kissing his daughter. Now, when will that start? The truth is, obviously, a newborn baby, anybody can hug and kiss, and, you know, uh, even if it's not related to me at all. So again, the age of yichud for a man to a young girl, uh, there are different opinions. The strictest opinion says as soon as they're three years old, which is pretty strict. Others are actually lenient until the time that the woman might begin to menstruate, which we estimate around 11 years old or so. So that means if I adopt a daughter, I don't have a problem until she's around 11. But once she's 11, and some people are stricter even before, I will have a yichud and negia problem. And the same thing is true with a mother and a son. That uh, here the age is a little different, that even though a mother and a natural born son, there's no prohibition of yichud and negia, but the Rebbe said if it's an adopted son, there would be a prohibition, and, and the age for the boy is nine. So until the kid is nine, uh, that's not a, a problem, because even my neighbor, I could, you know, uh, but okay. So the Rebbe pointed out that adoption at some age will kick in with problems of yichud and negia. Now, psychologically, this can be an enormously painful scenario, especially when there are natural-born children in the family. And I can, I can tell you this, I, I, I know firsthand such a case, in fact, they, they were actually a Chabad family, where they adopted uh, boys, and then they had natural children of their own. And uh, the wife was very strict that when the boy turned nine, she would not hug or kiss him but uh, the other children who were born from her, she did. So the kid is getting a sense of, you know, that they're better than him or whatever it is. And unfortunately, now that he's an adult, there are some costs uh, to that situation. So it would appear <laughs> that if you're going to follow this strict sock, you have to have a no-kissing policy for all the kids. You say, oh, this is not a, we show affection in other ways. But you don't single out some kids for that and then don't do the other kids. Now, this is the Rebbe's fact. The Rebbe actually poskened this. But I do want to point out, this is not a Chabad Chumrah. This is actually, the truth of the matter is, this is the mainstream Sakhalacha. 
The Rebbe was not being extra strict here. But I do want to point out that there is another opinion that's not the mainstream, but it is much more lenient. And this is a posek we've already encountered before who is lenient. This is Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, the Tzitz Eliezer, who was a Dayan in Yerushalayim, and uh, he died a few years ago in his 90s. He was a big expert in medical halacha in particular. He was the posseg for Shari Tzedek Hospital here. Uh, and he actually took the position that the reason why Yichud and Nagiyah is permitted between husband and, uh, between the father and daughter, and mother and son, is not based on biology, but it's based on the fact, it's based on sociology, that that which you have raised from a young age, you tend not to have sexual attraction for. So he claimed, as long as you adopted the children from infancy, even if it's not your biological child, there will never be a prohibition of yichud and negiyah. So according to him, uh, at least if you don't adopt an older child, if you adopt a baby, and most adoptions are babies, you never have to worry about Yichud and Nagiyah. Now, the truth is, that is a minority opinion. The Rebbe's uh, Psaq is actually the majority opinion. But I will tell you that when I was a rabbi, I, I routinely followed this lenient view because I thought it would be psychologically destructive to children to have this barrier uh, between them. Uh, but at least uh, whatever you're going to follow, be sure that if you do adopt a child, you're aware of this halachic uh, controversy. Now, this is not going to apply in conversion, meaning to say the following. If there's an intermarriage and they have children and everybody converts, since biologically it is the child, so there for sure, I mean, I... Right? If, if um, a family converts, even though they're all newly born, they're allowed to have yichud and negia with each other. That's not, nothing to do with this Shiloh. The Shiloh I'm raising is adoption, not uh, conversion, where, where there, there is the biological relationship. So if a family converts, uh, the mother can, has no problem with her son, and the father has no problem with the daughter. By the way, just stop. Just says, what about brother and sister? Interestingly enough, what about brother and sister? Not, 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 not gayrim, I'm not, not adoption. I'm just talking about brother and sister. Right? I mentioned there's no issue of yichud or negia between father, daughter, including grandparents. And there's no issue of yichud or negia between mother, son, including grandparents. What about brother, sister? Right? Brother, can brother, sister be alone in the house? Can brother, sister hug, kiss, right, etc.? So here it's very, very interesting. With respect to yichud, for sure it's permitted. You're allowed to have, uh, not you, but a brother was allowed to have yichud with a sister. Uh, that's not a problem. With respect to hugging and kissing, uh, until the sister is bas mitzvah, uh, it is certainly permitted. After bas mitzvah is really kind of very strange. The Rambam has all sorts of lishonos that this is an idiotic thing to do, it's not sneistic, it's bad, it's foolish. And he really, denou- you know, he denounces it. But here the commentaries say a very interesting thing. They say the very fact that the Rambam has to say how bad it is 
actually means it's not usher. <laughs> Meaning to say, it is technically permitted, but it's not a custom that should be followed on a regular basis. Now the reason that's important is that that would suggest that if a brother and sister only see each other infrequently, like you live in Israel, and uh, you visit your family once or twice a year, or they come to you, it would be permitted for a brother to hug a sister because that's sporadic, that's occasional. In other words, the Rambams, it's, it's a funny thing, the fact that the Rambam spends so much time saying how bad it is actually means he doesn't have a real reason why it's usher. So if it's something that, you know, you don't kiss your sister or your brother every day, but once in a while uh, you can be lenient. Now, keep in mind that this does create some problems. So on one hand, parents and children, no problem. Brother and sister, occasionally fine. Where you get into a real problem is uncle, aunt, and cousins. There it does get much more murky for a religious person. Because there the halacha is fairly strict. You can't just hug your uncle or hug your aunt or hug your cousins. So maybe we'll talk about it later, but that's where the halacha is much more stricter than brother sister. So you have to, uh, you have to be careful. On the other hand, Rav Moshe Feinstein suggests the following idea. He says a blood aunt or a blood uncle. By a blood aunt or uncle, I mean the actual brother of your father or mother or the actual sister of your father or mother. He suggests a blood uncle or aunt can be like a brother or sister, in which occasionally you could hug. But a married uncle or aunt is not the same, which means, what do I mean by married? My father's brother married a woman. So that woman is my aunt only through the marriage. That doesn't have the heter. So that would be kind of crazy that some aunts you'd be allowed, a man would be allowed to hug, some uncles, a woman would be allowed to hug, and some uncles not. That's going to be similar to the adoption problem. Okay? So I know these are hardships, and you know, people uh, sometimes ask Shilas, and sometimes don't. They just do what they do uh, based on their circumstances. But I just want you to at least know the basic halachic principles that are involved here. Okay, any, uh, any questions or comments about it? Yeah. Right, because uh, you raise them from infancy. So what if um, it's like an older sibling and they've raised their younger siblings as if they are their own kids, sort of? Not like illegal adoption, but like they view okay. their younger sibling as like, sort of their children. Oh, oh, in other words, the siblings themselves raised them, maybe? Because yeah. the parents were not uh, well or not there or whatever? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. That, that's very, very interesting. Um, I, I don't know. I tell you the truth. I, I think there would be a problem. Now, one could make the argument that uh, the same way parents could look at themselves as parents, so I could look at them as my siblings and then apply the leniency of sibling. But I don't think you could apply the leniency of parent. I don't think the sibling could say, I am the parent, because he knows he's not the parent. You know? So I, I don't think he'd have the total hedger of a, of a parent under those circumstances. But... 
you know, it is very tricky because there are, there are unfortunately, broken families where the uh, siblings sometimes have really assumed the role of parent. So let me think about it some more. Now, did you want to make the argument if they really, really, really took on all of the role of a parent, that perhaps we should treat it like an adoption even if there was no legal adoption? Yeah. I, I mean, I, it actually makes sense to me, but I, I have to say, I, I'm not aware of a clear source. Yeah. So they they essentially have yeah they essentially have taken on the role of parent yeah it's a very, it's a very interesting point. What about step step parents? Yeah, so step is the same thing. In other words, let me point out when I talk about adoption, you know, whether you have legal adoption or not is not really important. I mean, legal adoption is a secondary procedure, um, but a step parent is someone if if you're taking on the role of a father, even if it's a co-father or co-mother. So uh, this would be the same machlokas, according to the Rebbe and other poskim. If it's not your biological kid, you're going to have those halachas. According to the other ones, if you married when the kids were young, or babies, then you could take on that role. In other words, step-parenting would be the same as adoption. And that's basically it, yeah. What about like, um, like half-brothers, half-siblings? Oh, so half-siblings are, are the same as whole-siblings. As long as you share a parent... Uh, even if it's only half, right? But a half-sibling is not the same as a step-sibling. A step-sibling has no common parents at all. In fact, step-siblings are allowed to marry each other. I know sometimes people look at it like incest, but according to Halacha, in fact, I think the Chavitz Chaim's first wife was a stepsister. He lost his father, his mother remarried, and his first shidduch was with the uh, daughter of his stepfather. And that's totally permitted. That's why uh, I never understood why people were so crazy about Woody Allen. If you remember, uh, this, goes year, this goes many, many years ago. But uh, Woody Allen married, I don't know if he's still married to her, uh, Woody Allen married uh, his wife, his stepdaughter. And people were talking about incest, creepy. According to Halakha, that's a perfectly uh, kosher, kosher marriage. Okay. Wait, so if, yeah. if, a, if a person converts and their parents are... No, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I said something wrong. I, just okay. need, I need to correct That's that. Fine. Actually, you cannot, you, actually, you cannot marry your stepdaughter. Step-siblings can marry. Stepdaughter is an issue of the Arisa. You cannot marry your wife's daughter. So I, I want to stand corrected. Woody Allen did commit incest, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, if a, so if a person converts, if a child converts and their parents are Jewish, is that since like, your parents aren't technically their parents anymore? That's correct. They are technically not their parents. So, but for Yichud and Nagia, yeah. the biological connection is still okay. there. So there's not going to be a Yichud and Nagia problem, okay. even though technically it's not the parents. That's correct. Okay, we'll stop here.